Purpose Highway is a space for discussions that drive connections toward people's highest purpose to build a better self and a better world. Join me for season one, where I start to uncover stories of entrepreneurs and thinkers that are making an impact. I'm your host, Scott Mason, and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. It's Scott Mason revving up for another race down the Purpose Highway, and I have with me in the house today, David Schreiner Khan. David is an entrepreneur, podcaster, and speaker. He is, in fact, the host of two podcasts, Smashing the Plateau and Going Solo. And these podcasts have been featured in Forbes magazine and Inc. magazine, and they are incredible. We're going to be talking about them a lot today, but we're going to get to know David first. David, welcome to the show. It is so good to have you. Thank you so much, Scott. It's great to be here. Thank you. So let's get right into your life and your history. You went from being a chemical engineer to a nonprofit leader, and then it ended. Talk to us about that journey, and what was it like for you when you were told that the life that you had known was over? Um, well, it depends on which time, but um, yeah, yes, I did study chemical engineering. I worked as an engineer for a few years, and uh, first time that my job ended was when I was in my late 20s. The engineering company that I worked for lost a lot, a lot of business and um, had to lay off about half the staff, which um, also included me. And um, I will be honest, at that point in my life, I was not paying too much attention to what was going on around me. I wasn't paying too much attention to the signals I should have seen. But um, shortly after receiving a great performance review and a nice raise, I found myself collecting unemployment. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a rude awakening. And, and yes, life like I had known, um, had ended, um, you know, at that point, um, I could have gotten another job as an engineer. Um, in fact, I tried to, it was, um, it was a point when the economy was not great. And, um, even though, um, I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't facing things like ageism, which happened to so many people later on in, in their yeah. career. Um, I wasn't facing a lot of the obstacles um, like uh, being at the top of the wage scale. Yeah. Um, so getting another job would have been easier than for many other people. Yet at the same time, um, it didn't happen quickly. And frankly, the whole thing may be kind of disillusioned about corporate life. And I like mm. – so – that probably didn't help me in my um, in my efforts to try to find another engineering job. Yeah. Um, I w was also uh, at that point living in the Boston area, and there weren't um, there weren't actually a lot of chemical engineering jobs. There were there were a lot of um, like uh, more high tech companies in that area. So if I if I was in a different engineering discipline, it would have been way easier. Um, but you know the the um, the, the end of that particular part of the journey is that I decided um, after a lot of soul searching that I wanted to 
spend my time with something that I felt did have a higher purpose, which is why I went into the not-for-profit sector. And I did manage to get myself a job once I sort of set my my sights on what I want, the kind of work I wanted to do. Um, the job actually followed fairly quickly. So, so um, I know you talk a lot about about being purpose driven, and um, that's like one example of how when you're really clear on your purpose, the results do follow. It's mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily a linear process, and it's not something that that many people would look at and expect. But in fact, um, yes, I went into the not-for-profit sector and quite happily worked in that that field for over 20 years. Um, the interesting thing about it is I entered in a, um, a senior position in a very an organization with a very small staff. Um, and as a result, I was always in leadership roles the entire time I was in that sector which was quite different than my path would have been as an engineer. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, engineers do move up into management and leadership roles, yeah. but it's a slower process. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so I got a lot of, lot of leadership and management um, sort of on-the-job training and became quite good at it. And then in um, the mid-2000s, um, you know, my job had kind of plateaued. I w- had been in the same position for... Um, almost 18 years at that point, and um, there there was no upward mobility in my organization. So if I wanted to to grow and develop any further, the choices were either move into another organization as the CEO, or um, I could have done something which was less linear again, which was to become a consultant. And being um, a little bit of a control freak and wanting to have more um, more input into my destiny, you know, even yeah. though people in executive roles have a lot of autonomy, um, I decided I, I really wanted to go the entrepreneurial route and just become a consultant, which is what I did. I'm going to step back a little bit. There's a lot to unpack in that journey, and it's interesting stuff. You've lived, as you know, a very, very rich life, and there has been a lot of diversity. One of the things that strikes me immediately about your journey is the contrast between what you were talking about you experienced from a mission and purpose perspective in the nonprofit world versus what you experienced in the corporate world as a chemical engineer. Yet, I would imagine that one does not end up in a highly science-oriented profession like chemical engineering without an underlying sense of purpose related to that profession in the first place. Is that true? Or is there a story behind your journey into that profession that's, that we might not understand? Um, that's a great question, Scott. And I would say that um, people that are going into some kind of scientific field – can certainly do it because they're driven by a higher purpose. Um, you know, there are people that will study, for example, um, um, aeronautical engineering or physics mm-hmm. because they're interested in exploration of the um, uh, of the, the 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 world beyond Earth. Yep. Um, that was not my story at all. In fact, when I was in high school. Um, 
and it was time to think about what I would do after high school. Yeah. Um, and in my case, in my family, there, there really wasn't any um, any option of doing anything other than going to college. <laughs> um, so, you know, which, you know, sort of begs the question that, you know, you need to identify some path, um, even though the most popular major in American college and universities is undecided. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you still need to have some, uh, I think, some idea of why you would study what you would study, even if your major is undecided at first. You still will need to decide on, on certain courses, et cetera. Anyway, I um, just scored better in math and science in high school than I did in humanities. Mm. And uh, in large part, I was pushed um, uh, especially by my parents to, to study something where I had a track record of, of doing better. And also um, they were very risk averse. And and in um, in the U.S., the way the, the higher educational system works, there aren't too many subjects or, or um, um, actually professions where you can get training as an undergraduate. If you mm -hmm. want to get training, mm -hmm. for example, to be an attorney or a physician, mm -hmm. um, and you know you can go through the laundry list of of professions where there's an, there's some kind of certification. Usually that requires some kind of um, of graduate degree. Yeah. Um, engineering is one of the few where you can study engineering for four years, get a bachelor's degree, get a well-paying job, and you're likely to be employed for the next 30-plus years. Mm -hmm. um, so it was – you know, it was perceived by my parents as being something that was pretty safe and risk averse, and um, they were they were um, W two workers, both of them. They didn't do anything entrepreneurial, and so um, yeah, and engineering seemed like a a pretty safe bet for me. And it really wasn't until I was um, I was working as an engineer that I actually started to think about well. What's my life going to be like for the next right. thirty plus years? Because at that point, the typical um, you know things have changed a lot by now. But the, the typical length of a person's career was usually like thirty to forty years. Mm -hmm. um, now, often it's it's fifty, sixty, and sometimes yeah. even longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then you know, so I started thinking about it, and I was like, and especially once uh, once I experienced that first termination, I was like. Um, I don't know if I have the constitution for this. And, mm -hmm. and the fact is that I could see that decisions were made, um, especially in those days, primarily mm -hmm. for financial outcome reasons. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the people that were involved were not part of the consideration. Mm -hmm. if, if you think about what the way um, social entrepreneurship is, is today, yes. that like was, was not on the radar screen. You know, we're, we're talking, um, 40 plus years ago. Yeah. You know, were you say that your parents were risk averse. Were you yourself risk averse or was that something you just didn't know about yourself until life put you in a position where you had to discover it? Um, yeah, to be honest, I, I really didn't know. Um, I don't know that I had done anything that was, um, 
kind of counter to what the the norms would be. Um, you know, w- one of the things that that I think we all face is this. Um, there's this culture, especially in America, the culture of success, which is very much mm-hmm. driven by what other people perceive of you yeah. and what they expect yeah. you to do. And a lot of times we find ourselves on a path to fulfilling somebody else's expectations, mm-hmm. um, which is often where the the internal conflict comes up when you realize that y- you've been spending a lot of time, energy, and and possibly your own money pursuing something mm-hmm. that is fulfilling somebody else's expectations Mm -hmm. in the end it doesn't feel so great Mm -hmm. yeah which leads me back to the question that i wanted to ask you next which is with regards to your nonprofit work after you left engineering behind talk to us a little bit about the exact nature of the nonprofit work that you were doing i know that you were a leader in the nonprofit world but nonprofit can cover a whole range of different activities what exactly were the missions of the entities that you were involved with? So the first uh, first organization that I worked for was a synagogue. I was the uh, the executive director, and um, I so I did that um, at two different congregations, and then I worked for a Jewish education agency. Um, so I was involved in uh, in the faith sector, although my role was primarily administrative. It was um, sort of um, CFO, COO, CEO Mm -hmm. uh, kinds of functions. Um, So I wasn't part of um, promoting any particular dogma. It was more like um, um, keeping the relationships going and keeping the trains running on time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is important. Making sure there was enough money. Yeah. Which, you know, for the mission that they are involved in there's got to be people can forget that in my experience about the nonprofit world and that right. can be and, one and, of the challenges a, of being a manager in it as a matter of fact um you know once i became a consultant i had some christian clients um that were uh what one was a church and one was uh was catholic charities um catholic charities a lot of their work is not specifically faith-based either uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of community service work that's part of what they do, um, but it, you know it's interesting. No matter what the faith is, the actual functionality is quite similar. And 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 the other thing that's sort of um, an interesting observation, having done this both as an employee and as a consultant, is that the um, the behaviors of the people involved in the politics are actually quite similar. No matter what faith you're in. Fascinating. Fascinating. You know, having worked in the nonprofit sector, you understand the concept of mission. And you mentioned earlier that nonprofit work, as you transitioned into it, seemed to be more aligned with having purpose and meaning in your life. Digging a little deeper into that, though, do you believe that mission and purpose are the same? Or are they different? And if so, how? Um, well, I think that um, mission is focused um, more on serving others, and purpose is more of a combination of 
what lights your own fire mm-hmm. and what serves uh, serves other people as well. Mm. You said that at one point you decided you'd rather work for yourself and have control over your destiny. Talk to us a little bit about the internal psychological process that got you to that place. What exactly happened that led to that mental shift? What did it feel like? Well, for one thing, as I mentioned, growing up, I didn't, I wasn't really exposed to entrepreneurs. So I didn't know much about the, um, the entrepreneurial way of, of working. Um, I was more familiar with people who had jobs. Mm-hmm. And um, while I was working, I got exposed to entrepreneurs. I, Frankly, as a, particularly in the not-for-profit sector, I had hired a lot of consultants. So I got to know a, yeah. quite a bit about what the consulting lifestyle was like. And uh, and I would say there were a lot of elements about it that appealed to me. You get to decide um, what kinds of clients you want. Now, you, you may or may not be able to um, land deals with those clients, but you get to decide what kinds of clients you want. Um, you get to decide what kind of business model you want to try to create for your business. Yeah. Um, you get to decide what hours you work. Um you get to decide what kind of work you want to do. You can decide where you want to live. Um, so you really have a lot more control over your day-to-day life and your lifestyle than you do when you're an employee. When yeah. when you're an employee, I mean, you can decide those things, but you've also got to fit within the structure that an employer has created. Whereas yeah. as an entrepreneur, you get you, you do need to be structured. I, Make no mistake about it. Structure is one of the keys to success as an entrepreneur. But as the the CEO of your own business, whether you are um, self-employed, solo entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it, or you are you are running a um, uh, a bigger entity with uh, with a large team, if you're the CEO, you get to decide what the structure is. And for me, as I said, a, a little bit of a control freak. Um, that's important to me. Yeah. One of the things that I found most challenging but transformative once I moved from my identity as a W-2 employee into an entrepreneurial role was an understanding of who and what I was in the larger economic environment. From a macroeconomic perspective, The role of the entrepreneur, at least some would argue, is to locate and exploit resources, then convert it into wealth. Whereas an employee, even a high-level one, like a CEO, a CFO, is designed as a from a role perspective to implement that sort of conversion for a larger organization. And understanding that who and what I was doing in the world. that that had changed was part of, I would even say the critical part of my journey into fully embracing entrepreneurship and jetting forward on my own purpose highway. Does that resonate with you in any way? And do any of your clients or have any of the clients that you've worked with ever struggle with those issues? 
um, it certainly resonates with me. And yes, my clients struggle with these issues all the time. Uh, the, the part that resonates with me is, yes, as an entrepreneur, you are um, responsible. F- I, I love the way you described it. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that I can quote it exactly, but but the fact that you're responsible for creating some kind of economic outcome. Um, and it's, and if you, as an entrepreneur, if you are, um, and actually what it comes down to is, are you the, um, the owner of 100% of the, uh, of the entity, whether it's, um, a corporation, their shares, or whether you're, you are, um, in America, self-employed and filing the, you know, um, schedule C on your, on your, um, tax return. Yeah. Um, if, if you are, the 100% owner of that entity, then the economic benefit that the entity derives is directly proportional to what you're able to do as the, mm-hmm. um, as the owner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, um, you know, th- one of the ways I look at it is as an employee, even if you're highly paid, your compensation is structured by somebody else's rules. And there is going to be a limit to how high your compensation can be. It, it, yes, m- more or less. I mean, there are, there mm-hmm. are cases where where the structure has a strong um, bonus or commission element, mm-hmm. but that um, most employees don't fall under that kind of structure. For most employees, the primary part of their compensation is dictated by somebody else's structure. Whereas as um, as an entrepreneur, self-employed person, business owner, or, or however you describe it, we are responsible for the economic output or outcome. And, um, and essentially, depending upon how we create our business model, the sky can be the limit as to how much money we can earn. Now, yeah. the reality is that we know most people that are self-employed business owners, entrepreneurs, um, don't necessarily make any more money than those people who are employed. And in, in, in many cases, entrepreneurs make less yeah. and they work harder. Um, however, the um, the upside potential is way bigger as an entrepreneur, and and for me as somebody who's a again who who likes to be in control, um, that resonates with me. Now, I've had this conversation with many clients, especially um, one one of the struggles that small business owners, whether you're a business of of essentially one person or or you have a team, mm-hmm. one of the struggles is. Am I running my business or is my business running me? And very mm-hmm. often for many people, it feels like the business is running them. Mm-hmm. And then they say, it, you know, it feels like I just have a glorified job. And then when I say to them, well, would you rather have a job? The answer is always, always, <laughs> always no. And then the second part of the answer is who would hire me anyway? <laughs> and there's nothing like keeping it real, right? <laughs> You know, once once you've been an entrepreneur for um, for a long enough time, it gets harder and harder to be an employee and and to to sort of fit into somebody else's structure. I could totally relate. But that goes as to my next question: Do you think every entrepreneur should have the experience of being an employee? No, not necessarily. I've um, I know many people that have been entrepreneurs their whole lives. As a matter of fact, yesterday. Um, I recorded an episode on my podcast um, with Jeffrey Shaw, 
who has been an entrepreneur his whole life since he's mm -hmm. been 14. He is now a business coach. And the bulk of the people he coaches are people who are corporate refugees. They worked for a long time in the corporate world and they um, became entrepreneurs in, in midlife or later. Mm -hmm. um, and they struggle with that transition. It's a tough transition to make. Yeah. I, I know I made it. Um, yeah. And there have been ups and downs, you know, no question about it. But, yeah. um, you know, since he's been an entrepreneur his whole life, he is able to see things that his clients don't see, and he can be a great resource to them. As you may suspect, by virtue of the fact that I keep coming back to this particular thing that you said, one of the things that you stated during our pre-interview process that has rang a bell with me most intensely has been when you said you'd rather work for yourself and have control over your destiny. What does destiny mean to you, David? Um, it's, it's the outcome, the outcome that, um, that I am able to produce, whether it's on a, a daily basis, an hourly basis, weekly, monthly, yearly, or over the entire course of my mm -hmm. career, I would like to be able to look back over my career um at at um at whatever the end point is and feel like i have done my best to serve the people that i wanted to serve and i've and i'm proud of what i've done i've made a difference in the lives of other people and i've made a difference for my own life and for those that are close to me when we talked earlier about risk aversion. And when you talked a few minutes ago about the various roles that people have in society as employees versus entrepreneurs, and then when you mentioned the midlife career transitioners that had been employees their whole lives and now were adjusting to life as entrepreneurs, do you feel as though the comfort or at least the perceived comfort that employment or employee life can provide is a consistent challenge that those that you've worked with or that you have interviewed or met with otherwise have had in terms of leaving it behind? And if so, how do they work through that or how do you guide them to work through it? Or what sorts of processes do you find to be most effective in getting them there? Um, so do you mean, do they have, do they feel challenged by leaving comfort uh, behind, or at least the perceived comfort that might come from having a paycheck regularly coming into your bank account? Uh, from, from the, the, with the people that I've worked with, I find that, um, that they generally fall into the camp of, um, working better as an employee or working better as an entrepreneur. I don't find there's a whole lot of middle ground. Mm -hmm. And and yes, people that become entrepreneurs, they may, um, they may have some longing for um, for some of the perceived. 
I'm not sure that comfort is is the right word for it, but um, the the perceived benefits of being an employee. Um, but a discussion with them doesn't require a whole lot of depth to unearth the fact that it's um, that the perception of of um, of those benefits is actually um, somewhat fleeting, mm. uh, because the reality is that if your um, all or nearly all of your revenue is coming from a single source, mm-hmm. um, then you're actually a much you're in a much riskier position than if you have revenue coming from multiple sources because mm-hmm. we we all know that um, there is no guarantee of revenue. Mm-hmm. It's um, it, it's certainly cyclical. And if you have multiple revenue streams, let's, let's say you have five revenue streams that are yeah. of equal weight, if one of them dries up, so your revenue is down by 20%, well, um, that will affect your lifestyle much differently than if your revenue is down by 100% yeah. <laughs> or 80%. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, personally, I think that that being an entrepreneur actually provides you with um, with less risk, but you need to understand how um, how to function as an entrepreneur. That's quite different. If, if you're somebody that really has a hard time creating your own structure and, and following a, stru- a structure that you've created, um, and you really like following a structure that somebody else has created, you're probably going to function better as an employee. Mm-hmm. As many people I know have found out, it is so easy to glamorize um, entrepreneurialism because that's something that the media does and it's part of our political discourse. The reality of it is something else altogether. If you were to have a conversation with someone who is considering, considering entrepreneurship after 10, 20, 25 years as an employee, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give them before taking the big plunge? Always have a plan B. And this is a piece of advice I give people, whether they're an employee or an entrepreneur. Always have a plan B. Always do your scenario planning and, and have more than one plan B. Like have one that's the primary one, mm-hmm. have, have another one, et cetera. Because the place you don't want to be in, you don't want to be working on strategy when there's a crisis. It's like um, – there's a reason we have fire drills. We have fire drills so that when there's a fire, we don't have to think because we know how people are going to feel and how they're going to react when there's a fire. You want to know exactly what you're supposed to do. So same thing is true when you're facing any kind of major obstacle or major transition. If you know in your mind, if this doesn't work out, I am going to do that. And have some kind of roadmap as to how you are going to do that so that you can get started on it very quickly if you have to. Um, So if you're an employee and you lose your job, know exactly what you're going to do next. If it's another job, how are you, what kind of job, how are you going to get the job? Who do you have to know? Relationships are key to everything in life, whether it's as an employee or as an entrepreneur, who are the key relationships that are going to help you get another job and make sure that you have, um, you mine those relationships so they're they're you're top of mind on on somebody else's mm-hmm. list when you need to go to them. 
Um, same thing is true when, if you're negotiating your salary. If you know you have an alternative, you will be a better negotiator. Mm -hmm. um, now, and, and then if you're an entrepreneur, if plan A doesn't work out for your business, know what plan B is and know when the – uh, what what the key performance indicators are to tell you when it's time to pull out plan B and start working on it. After hearing this sort of very practical and actionable advice, I have no doubt that the people listening to or watching this show are going to want to know what you're doing next, how they can find you, how they can contact you. Tell us all that stuff, David. Um, yeah, so the easiest place to um, get to know more about me is to go to our website, smashingtheplateau.com. That's where both podcasts are housed, Smashing the Plateau and Going Solo. They both have um, literally hundreds of episodes with um, lots of people telling stories about their own journeys, um, primarily as consultants and coaches, because um, we focus on um, – a lot on the, the self-employed or the business where there's one primary person delivering the offering to the clients. Um, so, uh, and there's also a heavy focus on folks that have been in corporate for a long time and then made a transition into entrepreneurship. So smashingtheplateau.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. Um, you can actually call our office. We get, uh, our office gets answered by a live human. Uh, 212-731-0770. They'd be happy to talk to you and set a time for us to speak. And if I'm available when you call, I will speak with you. And that is truly the human touch. I will have to just say a couple of things before we move on. A, first of all, your LinkedIn content is excellent. B, both of those podcasts are absolutely top tier and anyone listening to or watching this should check them out. David, it has been great riding with you on the Purpose Highway today. Thank you so much. For anyone listening, if you enjoyed this episode, don't just reach out to David, but although you definitely should, but subscribe to this podcast, leave us a review. And David, I just have to say thank you again. It was phenomenal. Everyone else, I will see you next time for another Ride Down the Purpose Highway. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Join our community today at PurposeHighway.com and subscribe to get notified when new episodes go live. Scott Mason, checking out.